You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 13th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Phil Plate. Hey, hey. What? Phil. Special? I've been on this more than you. (laughs) <laughs> you have been on more than Bob. We established that recently. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Phil. Ah, it's my pleasure, too. I always have a fun time doing this. Wherever I go, whenever I give a talk or something, somebody always comes up to me and says, you know, I, I, I first heard you on Skeptic's Guide. So I think that's really cool. So what's new, Phil? Nothing. Astronomy's, okay. you know, we're done. We've, we've discovered Universe everything. Universe is still there. <laughs> Did, oh, we they, figured everything out? Yeah. Saw everything, huh? Sad. So, Good. So, okay. Yeah. Leaves a bit more time for hobbies. Watching Doctor Who. Hey, happy 50th anniversary to Doctor Who. Yay. Hey. He's 50? <laughs> that was a sad little <laughs> celebration, you guys. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and there was much rejoicing. Fantastic. Uh, I love it when the audience does all the work for us. Um, Andrew Antaro emailed in and said... That the Doctor Who 50th anniversary is on Saturday, November 23rd. Because of that, he even took the extra step of sending in some sound files from Doctor Who. He went back to the very first skeptical quote that he could find. Uh, 16 minutes and three seconds into the pilot, he heard the first skeptical quote, which was, you don't understand, so you find excuses. By William Hartnell, the first doctor. And then he also included another skeptical quote from Matt Smith. The ship is cursed! Yeah, right, cursed. He's big with humans. It means bad things are happening, but you can't be bothered to find an explanation. So some skeptical quotes from a generally unskeptical show. Well, <laughs> fantasy-driven show, at least. But now that you guys have finally caught up, and I think we're all Doctor Who fans, I think we can all appreciate the fact that this is the 50th anniversary. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally have my daughter's hook, too. I wouldn't say that it's an unskeptical show. I think that the show, yes, it's very fantasy-driven, science fiction fantasy. But the you know the Doctor as a hero is great. He He's nonviolent. He uses knowledge and, and smarts to figure things out, to solve problems. He's like the most dangerous man in the universe because he's a really smart guy. Yeah, yeah. And, he ha- and he has a TARDIS and he With can travel TARDIS. to time and space. <laughs> yeah. right. I helps. guess by unskeptical, I merely mean that it's not the sort of show where everything ties together and makes sense if you think about it too much. Yeah, it's kind of a time travel show, so, you know. There's a lot of timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly stuff that you just sort of forgive because it's entertaining. Yeah. You know? Craig Ferguson said it best. And he said that Doctor Who is the triumph of intellect and romance over brute force and cynicism. That's very mm-hmm. nice. That's like fair. It. Phil, who's your favorite doctor? They all are. It's only one doctor. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> pick a favorite. Uh, well, you know what? I really like David Tennant. And uh, I was not happy with Matt Smith at first, but I've kind of grown into him. And I really like him now. So I wouldn't say he's my favorite, but I like him a lot. The correct response was David Tennant. Yeah, David Tennant is correct. However, I'm really looking forward to Peter Capaldi. Yeah. Yeah. I love 
I loved him on, well, basically everything else he's ever done, but I absolutely loved him on the thick of it. But I don't know. I was really disappointed that they, they went with another same old, same old for, for this choice. It's what do you mean? Just, By that, do you mean a white male? Yeah. Older British. British white male. Yeah. It's like, you know, come but what are, on. There what are, so are the parameters cool of the regeneration though? I mean, does the regeneration? It's, would- it's Doctor Who. <laughs> right. There's no, there's no parameter that cannot be easily changed. But anyway, there is no, no, there's no parameter. And, you know, they, they've had mentions of female time ladies in the past. There's nothing that, that prevents them from, from using a person of color or a woman. So yeah, it was a little disappointing, but I do love, I love that actor. So I'm interested to see what he'll do with it, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little disappointed. Yeah, I know. I I read all the speculation about that. Is it going to be a woman? Is it going to be a person of color? And, you know, expanding the, the role is in the character is interesting, but at the same time, the character of the doctor is it, it's not unreasonable to say that there are certain characteristics that the doctor will always have. Because, you know, you don't want to change the character too much. I could see an argument being made in both directions. Yeah, there's just nothing about the doctor that I think is explicitly white, for instance. The doctor is zany and smart and, you know, clever, but not white. Yeah. <laughs> like, whiteness isn't really a. They have established that your race can change between regeneration. Yeah. With uh, River Song. But not sex. As far as I know, sex or gender has never changed with, uh, No, I think they, they did reference that. I, I don't have it at the tip of my fingers, but they, <laughs> they have referenced it in the past. Well, I was hoping for Jennifer Saunders. That, that would have been amazing. From ab- yeah. absolutely fabulous. Uh-huh. Or the, the one thing that I think will never happen is an American doctor. <laughs> the British are so yeah. possessive oh, of their doctor. Even just when, you know, for our brief mention of the, of it last week on the, or two weeks ago on the uh, message board. So one of our British listeners was like, it's so weird to hear Americans talking about the doctor. He's our doctor. Oh God. You know what I think would be great is if Peter Capaldi regenerates and then immediately dies. <laughs> and, then they, <laughs> and they're all like, psych. Well, let's get really a chance bizarre. and see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, what's up with John? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. We'll find oh, yeah. out in a week. That's right. Let's go on to some actual news items now. Uh, Phil, so when we bring you on, <laughs> we sort of, I've saved up a Dr. few Who? astronomy-themed news items. You know, when a couple of them hit, and we're like, yeah, you know what? I should get Phil on the show, and we'll just do a bunch of astronomy news items. So the first one I want to talk about is the recent estimate of the number of Earth-like planets that are out there in the galaxy. Yeah, this is very cool. And let me let me start right out here and say that uh, work like this has been done before. We are discovering a lot of these planets orbiting other stars, exoplanets. And we it, at first there weren't that many, and they were all kind of weird, sort of like big Jupiter-like planets orbiting really close to their sun, very much unlike the Earth. Uh, but as we got better at this, we started finding smaller planets it, it turned into less of a, you know, we've discovered a new planet into more of a cataloging them. Once you have enough of them, you can start putting them into nice little bins like these are too close, these are too far, this one's got an atmosphere, this one doesn't, that sort of thing. When you do that, you start getting statistics. And when you've discovered close to a thousand planets, we're right around a thousand planets right now, you start to get decent statistics. And basically, this uh, this is another way of going through all of the planets that we've discovered and categorizing them then 
extrapolating that to see how many are Earth-like. And in this case, we're starting with the Kepler Space Telescope, which is a, a telescope that's out in space, oddly enough, staring at one patch of the sky in Cygnus the Swan in the northern hemisphere, northern sky. And it's looking at one spot all the time. And it's looking at about 150,000 stars. And what it's looking for is if a planet is orbiting a star, and we happen to see the orbit of that planet edge on, then every time the planet passes between us and the star, it blocks a tiny little bit of the sunlight. And Kepler is sensitive enough to detect that. And it might only be 1% of the star. Actually, gosh, getting a 1% dip in the starlight's a lot. A planet like the Earth blocking a star like the sun, it's actually, I, I want to say, a hundredth of a percent, a ten-thousandth of the sunlight. And it depends on how big the planet is and how big the star is. So, uh, you can tell how big the planet is by how much light it blocks. You can tell its period by how long it takes to pass around the star. And uh, that tells you how far away it is from the star. You can actually get quite a bit of data looking at this. So, with that preface out of the way, what they did is they looked at 150,000 stars and said, how many of these stars are like the sun? For you, you know, astro nerds out there, G-type stars, or even K, which are a little bit cooler than the sun. And they... they uh, sifted through the data, and they found 42,557 stars. And they said, how many planets do we see orbiting out of those 42,557 stars? And they found a little over 600. And some are big, some are small, some orbit really close to their star, some really far away. So what they did was they looked at the planets and said, how big are they? Can we tell how big they are? And the answer is yes. They looked for planets that were between one to two times the size of the Earth. So not too small and not too big. And then judging from the distance from the star, they said, we, we're going to uh, limit this to planets to get between one quarter and four times as much sunlight as the Earth does. So what they're saying is, sort of in, in, in what scientists call parameter space, where you can sort of list a bunch of things and say, how much do we want to fool with these, these numbers? They, they're looking for planets that are like the Earth, stars that are like the sun, and planets that are at the right distance from their star to get roughly the same amount of sunlight as the Earth. Some of these planets may be too hot, some of them may still be too cold. It depends if they have an atmosphere or not. We don't know if these planets have an atmosphere or not. We don't know what they're made of. Doesn't matter. We're just trying to get a really good grasp of sort of the overall picture here. And when they did that, out of those 600 planets, they found 10. 10 planets that get between a quarter and four times as much sunlight and are very much like the Earth, orbiting sun-like stars. And if you take that number and extrapolate that out to the number of stars in the galaxy and all that sort of thing, what you find is that very roughly between a quarter and a fifth of all sun-like stars in the galaxy should have Earth-like planets, statistically speaking. There are roughly 20 billion stars like that in the galaxy, and so a fifth of them, 4 billion, 5 billion, something like that, uh, well, it, there should be something like 4 or 5 billion Earth-like planets in the galaxy alone. Was it 40? There are 200 billion stars in the Milky Way. 10% are like the sun, so that's 20 billion stars. The article says 40 billion. Yeah, the article means it says 40 billion. Okay, let me put it this way. There are billions of Earth-like planets out there, or there should be, statistically speaking. That number is fairly variable depending on what kind of stars you're looking at. In fact, uh, we know that there are planets orbiting red dwarfs, which are way more common than stars like the sun. Uh, yeah. you know, half the stars in the sky are like that. And so when you add up all the stars in the galaxy that could have planets that are receiving the right amount of light and are planets like the Earth, 
you get numbers that are in the tens of billions. Trying to oh, try- so that's combining with the red dwarfs, you get to forty. I think that's correct. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and either way, it doesn't it doesn't matter. The whole point is because we don't know exactly, and it doesn't really matter. The whole point is. Uh, the Earth is not the only Earth-like planet out there. And it's not that there are, you know, five or 17. There are billions of them out there. Yeah. And, uh, so that, that's really amazing and very hopeful for me, I think. <clears throat> we are so not alone. Phil, do you think the planets have, like, similar gravity that, than Earth? Or, like, how similar would you say they are? Well, this is a, that's a really good question. This is a really neat topic because it depends on a lot of things. You can have a planet twice as big as the Earth... But it can have Earth-like gravity. It just depends on how dense it is. The, the surface gravity, the amount of gravity you feel when you're standing on the surface of a planet, depends on the mass and the radius. And so if you... Uh, it, it really, it just kind of scales with density. So if you... Uh, you can have a bigger planet, and if you just change the mass the right way, for example, if, it has, um, if it's made of a lighter material or a denser material... The gravity can be almost anything you want. Not so much like that, but you know, you could, you could easily find a planet with half the Earth's gravity up to a couple of times the Earth's gravity in this uh, range of planets that they're finding. So it's not like they're looking for planets like the Earth. They don't want to find something that has eight times the Earth's gravity or something that has a sixth right. like the moon does. So keeping it, keeping the radius between one to two times the Earth, um, probably keeps the gravity in that range. It won't be too strong of a surface gravity so that it can hold on to lighter uh, elements like hydrogen or helium and turn into a gas giant. You don't want that. You know what bothers me? What? Every single planet that the that Star Trek visited, the Enterprise visited, had exactly one G. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, maybe they just don't go to the other places. I could swear. Never? I, I, I suppose No, you're right, so, Stephen. But... You know why they did it. I mean, it was... Oh, it's because it's cheap. Of course. Budget restrictions. I could and swear no, there was at some point they were but, on a planet and they, they said the gravity's too light to be the planet we thought we were on or something like that. I know there's one where the sky was the wrong color, but that was because that was the gamesters of Triskelion because, hello, dork, but I seem to remember one about gravity, but I can't place it. Maybe I'm wrong. There, there may be an exception out there, but you know, the vast majority. The vast majority, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Exactly well, Steve, well think about it, Steve. With billions of, of Earth-like planets, they could be they could be very picky and say we're only. Well, I'm not talking about the. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm not talking about the ones that they colonize, but even when they like, they have to visit a world with some aliens on it for some reason. You know, they're all one G. Well, it could be point anyway. eight or one point two. You'd hardly notice. Sure. Also, a good point. See, shove it, Steve. Yeah, really. no, I bet you, so, you would notice. I bet you, <laughs> you would. I bet you. I bet you would not look normal to the human eye. Yeah, you'd notice so, Phil, we for have sure, but I'm, I, I wonder. Uh, I wonder how evolution would be different at 1.2, right? The trees might be more stunted, or maybe they would just develop a. Plants might develop a, a better technique for reinforcing themselves against gravity. You might not right. get sequoias, but you'd still get you know willow trees or oaks or something. I yeah. Don't know. So, Phil, do do you think that this might be an underestimate still because of the the techniques that we're using to find planets are biased towards big worlds? In this case, um, they tried to account for planets they might miss because, for example, if we're seeing the orbit face on, then the planet never passes in between us and the star. Uh, so they accounted for stuff like that. Now, your point is that uh, the way we look for transits and, the, and some of the other methods, yeah, we, it, it's easier to see bigger Jupiter-like planets on closer in orbits. It's very hard to find Earth-sized planets because... For one thing, they don't block that much of the starlight. And if they're far enough from the star that they're not too hot, 
it, you know, they're on, a, on an orbital period of about a year, and it's hard to find those planets because they transit their star over the course of a, you know, an hour or something like that, and that only happens once a year. Uh, it, it is very tough to find these kind of planets. They tried to account for all that sort of stuff. But I agree with you. I think that this is an underestimate. For, for one thing, again, they're just looking at sun-like stars. They were not looking at red dwarfs. We know that um, uh, up to 15% of these smaller, cooler red dwarfs have an Earth-sized planet at the right distance. Hotter stars can do this as well. Uh, it's, it's less likely for a host of reasons, but uh, it could happen. And um, this would not necessarily find exomoons, for example. Moons yeah, of planets right, that are far right. enough mm-hmm. out. You could have Europas and Enceladuses. Enceladi? Enceladi. Ooh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where, Pandora. Uh, yeah, where they might have uh, you know, undersurface oceans or other things heating them. So my guess is that we will find when if we if our technology gets this good whether we have to go there or whether we just have gigantic telescopes 100 miles across out in space or something we will find that yes this is an underestimate and there will be far more planets out there than we thought phil i have a random astronomical question for you can you have a, a you know you have a sun and then a planet and a moon can the moon have a moon that's a really good question that's a i get that one every now and again the answer is yes kind of. Um, for example, we have satellites orbiting the Earth's moon. And so you can think of those as a moon of a moon. You could have a, uh, a small 1 to 10 meter rock orbiting a moon. Uh, the problem is, uh, stability. depending on how you do this, the orbits typically aren't stable. To be, you have to be close enough to the moon that the planet's gravity doesn't adversely affect that orbit. If you put a satellite around a moon, over time, the planet's gravity will poke it and push it, and eventually it'll crash into the, into the moon. And if you put it too close to the moon, irregularities in the gravitational field, there are mountains and valleys and things under the surface, uh, will also mess with the orbit, and eventually it'll crash. So over the lifetime of the universe, it would be unlikely. And, and from what we've seen in our solar system, the moons do not have moons unless we put them there. So the answer is yes, but it would be temporary uh, over, over billions of years. And are they called moons, or is there another word, or can we make one up right now? Satellite. Moonlight? Submoons. Oh, I see what you're saying. Subsatellite? Submoons. I don't know. Phil, one question for me about this. So we, now we know, where, you know what to look for, where these planets are. We've identified them. Now what are the signatures that we should start looking for as far as you know, evidence of uh, any sort of intelligent life? Well, I don't know. Um, there are a lot of clever ways of doing that. It, you know, SETI is looking for radio signals. Methane in the atmospheres? Methane's an interesting one. Um, uh, a lot of the planets have methane in their atmospheres. Uh, Saturn, Jupiter, uh, Uranus, Neptune. Um, so methane is unstable under certain circumstances, like on Earth. And it, our atmosphere is fundamentally different than those gas giants. But methane is, is relatively unstable. It tends to combine with things. So if you see an atmosphere of, say, a terrestrial planet, something small like the Earth that's also warm, methane would be very unlikely. Um, unless it's, you know, incredibly geologically active. So seeing methane wouldn't necessarily be proof of life, but it would be interesting. Um, if you saw methane and, uh, or excuse me, if you saw oxygen, O2, like in yes. our atmosphere, O2 is incredibly reactive, and it's, uh, it's, got a, it's got a lifetime that's incredibly short. So if it's out of equilibrium, in other words, if you just, you know, stick oxygen in an atmosphere, let the planet sit, and in 100 years it should all be gone. Uh, but on Earth, it's not because we have a supply of it from plants. So 
if you saw that, that would be a much stronger indicator. Uh, the only thing is, the universe is very tricksy, and I don't necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, if we saw it too, I would be very excited. But I, you know, I, I would say that the universe is very clever, and it might come up with a way of, of producing O2 that we hadn't thought of. Um, I, mm-hmm. I'd like to have a series of indications of life rather than just like one or two. But who knows? You know, we've got James Webb Space Telescope going up. It'll be able to detect lots of interesting things, uh, signatures of chemicals and other planets. We'll have to wait and see. Okay, I have named a planet's moon's moon. We shall forever call them a moony moo moo. No. <laughs> Okay. That's going to catch on. That's, that, that's not the next moon. Moonlet. That's not the, it's not a, yeah. a moonlet's not bad. Moonlet's already in use for tiny moons. You guys are going to have a hard time getting that past the IAU, the International Astronomical Union. Moony Moo Moo. We're going to move on to a couple of items dealing with our own solar system. Uh, very quickly, this one's uh, about the new images of Saturn from NASA. They're absolutely stunning. So the Cassini spacecraft's been orbiting uh, Saturn now. For, uh, it's getting close to a decade. Pretty amazing. It's been over nine years. And it's, you know, it's been returning all these fantastic images. And in 2006, it took this amazing mosaic of Saturn. It, it was on an orbit that took it, um, an elliptical orbit that took it kind of far out. And it was on the night side of Saturn. So they took this mosaic, a series of pictures, uh, that they put together. And it was this gorgeous backlit picture of Saturn. Well, they looked at it and said, this is great. Uh, and it's scientifically useful, but it was kind of an accident. It's beautiful, but they didn't plan it to be beautiful. They just kind of planned it for scientific purposes. So they said, let's do this again. Carolyn Porco basically said, the, the imaging team leader for Cassini, basically said, let's do this again, but do it right and take it using the right filters and the right combination and then uh, put these together and release the image. And so in July of 2013, July 19th, I believe it was, over a course of four hours, it took over a hundred pictures using red, green, and blue filters of Saturn when basically Saturn was between Cassini and the Sun. So Cassini was on the night side of Saturn looking up at it at a slight angle, a 17 degree angle, I believe. Um, it's taken them a while to put these pictures together because they were very careful. And uh, they're spectacular. It's gorgeous. It's this incredible picture. I mean, I'm sure the listeners have seen it. If they haven't, uh, I've got it on my blog. You can find it all over the place. Uh, you can see the, sat- the, 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 the Saturn uh, disk. It's, a, it's silhouetted because you're looking over the night side of the planet. You're looking through the rings. You're not looking at the directly illuminated rings. The sun is behind them. So they're looking kind of shadowy and cool. Um, there's, uh, you can see a bunch of moons, including Enceladus with its geysers of water blasting out of the South Pole. Uh, a lot of uh, interesting features in the rings and on the planet itself. But one of the things that's really, really cool about this is just to the lower right of Saturn is the Earth. You can see it as a tiny dot. And not only that, you can see the moon next to the Earth. It's pretty amazing. Mars and Venus are in this picture as well. Uh, and it's just phenomenal. There's a ton of stuff going on. I describe it on my blog. Um, Emily Lakdawalla, my pal over at the Planetary Society blog, has a video tour of the image where she actually describes what you're seeing uh, and at, I, I would highly recommend going to the Planetary Society blog and, and taking a look at that because she's really thorough and goes over what's going on in the picture. It's really gorgeous. Yeah, it's cool. You could download the full images from the NASA site, and they even have ones that are labeled. like So all the moons are labeled, everything you could see in the picture. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's 9,000 by 3,500 pixels. So there you go. Right. Wow. I thought this was a fake picture the first time I saw it. It was an unbelievable shot, right? I mean – 
I don't know. Does anyone be able to feel that? Like this is not. Real, yeah, it does. It does. Reading it into looks it. Photoshopped. Well, wow. it is. It I mean, does. it's just not created well, from well, whole cloth, right? It's, it's a composite. It's starting with actual data, and then they they uh, overlapped the pictures and did all kinds of manipulation. Nothing they did is um, faking the image, really. They're just putting them together to, to make it pretty. It's gorgeous. Yeah, that's definitely one of the best astronomy pictures of the year. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. It's really worth getting the big one because you can see stars in the background. There are some really faint features in the rings. There was a ring that I didn't even know existed uh, created by a tiny little moon that's just a few kilometers across. Um, and it, uh, it's basically an icy moon that gets hit by meteoroids, you know, little, little asteroids in space that blasts off chunks of ice. And so there's this little ringlet uh, that this moon basically creates. And I mean, I'd never even heard of that before. So it's pretty amazing to, to download the big image and take a look, take a, a long, careful look at it. It's phenomenal. Another cool image, although not as high res, is the six-tailed asteroid. Very yeah. interesting how that comes to be. I was reading a lot about it. You know, it's still a little bit mysterious exactly what's generating those six tails. Yeah, this is an interesting object. It's out in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and it's called... P2013P5. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, huh, because the first P is usually reserved for comets. P stands for periodic. And so uh, when it was discovered, I, I knew right away that when it was discovered, it already had these weird tails. Um, in, instead of something that's like being some asteroid we've known about for a long time that then developed tails. In fact, it was discovered um, by a survey with these tails coming out of it. Not just like one, but it has six. Uh, and it looks like a comet with six tails. So it was given this cometary name. Well, it turns out it is, in fact, an asteroid. It's, uh, it's a rocky body. It's probably not that big. It's probably something like a kilometer or two across, you know, roughly a mile. Um, why does it have tails? Well, we're not exactly sure. This does happen sometimes. Um, asteroids can collide and uh, you get a, a, a basically a spray of material coming off of them, but not six. So uh, something else must be going on. And what they think happened here, maybe, and this, this, fits the, this fits what we're seeing, is if you take an asteroid and put it out in sunlight and you let it spin, right? Or, or just for a second, ignore the spin. Just put it out in sunlight. Half of it's in sunlight, half of it's dark. So half of it's warm and half of it's cold. Now, if you let it spin... The, the hot side, the sunward side, will then rotate into the dark side and radiate away its heat. And that's just, you know, that's how things get rid of their heat out in space. They radiate away as infrared light. Well, light has momentum. Even though a particle of light has no mass, part of quantum mechanics, part of relativity, is that uh, light has a, has a certain amount of momentum. So when these, when these photons of infrared light bling off the, the asteroid, they shoot away, they carry away a little bit of the asteroid's momentum, a little bit of the spin. And it turns out, depending on whether uh, the asteroid's lumpy or whatever, it can either um, add or subtract to the asteroid's spin over time. In this case, what they think happened is this thing has um, got a loose surface. It's kind of a dusty, rocky surface. And it's been spinning faster over time due to this effect, which is the YORP effect. It stands for four very long... Slavic names, which I can't remember off the top of my head. But basically, this thing has been spinning faster and faster over time, and eventually, it got so fast that it started flinging material off its surface. And it's had several of these episodes where basically maybe there was a landslide and stuff has, has been flung off the surface over the past few months. And that's what we're seeing. Pretty amazing. Normally, an asteroid wouldn't have a tail because anything that's 
in the solar system, in the inner solar system, that had anything that would evaporate away and create a tail should already be gone. It's only because comets are coming into the inner solar system with their ice and dust, you know, that, that they generate a tail. So this is some, this, something who must have changed about this asteroid not too long ago. That's it exactly, yes. A comet, a comet and an asteroid are very similar, except a comet has a lot of ice in it. Uh, water, ice, ammonia, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, things like that. When it gets near the sun, that stuff heats up and blows off the surface and forms the, the fuzzy head and the long tail of the comet. But comets come in with only a certain amount of gas in their tank, literally, and uh, eventually they run out of this stuff and they just become rock and they just you know orbit the sun. They look more like asteroids. They're dead comets. Uh, in this case, you've got something orbiting out on a nice stable orbit out past Mars. It's probably not a dead comet. Uh, and it's clearly not dead because there's stuff coming off of it. If this asteroid had ice on it, it would seem like a really weird coincidence that we happen to find it right as some event makes it blow off this ice. Uh, so that seems unlikely. Uh, it seems much more likely that uh, it's been spun up. And we know that this effect mm. works. We've seen it work on other asteroids. And I found the name. It's called the yarkovsky okeefe radzievsky Paddock effect, which is why it's called YORP, Y-O-R-P. It's memorable. Yeah, it's cool. quite the mouthful. But Yorp there you go. I mean, this is a quantum mechanic effect operating in the macroscopic world over time. Don't tell Deepak Chopra this. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I saw the picture, I had a weird half a second where I saw the picture and read the title. And just for a second, I was thinking, oh, wow, this this could be like an alien artifact, some alien ship that's malfunctioning. Of course, it, it was very fleeting, but it was a very fun half second. They're venting plasma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're about to eject their warp core. You're uh, adorable, Bob. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, Phil, speaking of Deepak Chopra. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, quantum. He's been uh, on a tear attacking skeptics recently. Really? A rash? He doesn't like us, apparently. Hmm. Um, yeah, he wrote hmm, two hmm. articles, uh, part one and part two, where he is attacking what he calls militant skepticism. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Ten hut. Yeah. Uh, so for, for those who may not know, Deepak Chopra is a uh, physician who has published many books and has been promoting this notion of quantum healing. Essentially what he has been doing is taking Indian mysticism, you know, that there's some universal consciousness, that the universe itself is conscious, conscious and that our human consciousness is somehow part of this, that it's not purely material or part of the brain. And he has been trying to um, sell this Eastern mysticism as New Age pseudoscience and is you know trying to justify it with quantum mechanical language and completely abusing quantum mechanics. The end result is that he comes out with, and we've joked about him on the show before, he comes out with these sort of flowery platitudes that are ultimately meaningless. In any case, he has been, he doesn't like skeptics because we call him on his bullshit, basically. And he wrote two articles which amount to trying to marginalize scientific skeptical criticism of his views. He does that partly by conflating skepticism with atheism. You know, he says, talks about skeptics, but then as examples of skeptics, he talks about um, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, the God delusion and the end of faith and their attack, their, their uh, discussions of religion as, as if that is 
skepticism as also as if he's completely oblivious of you know the the philosophical discussions that have been taking place within the skeptical movement about um our relationship to philosophically to uh faith-based claims or claims that are outside the realm of science etc not to get not to open that whole can of worms but you know chopra just seems to completely oblivious about the whole thing it just conflates it all as militant skepticism he does that, you know, he sets up a bunch of straw men about what skeptics are and what skeptics say, and then, you know, knocks those down. And all for the purpose of defending, essentially injecting supernaturalism, mysticism, universal consciousness into science. So, for example, he says that there are four things that science cannot explain and not only undermines the materialist assumptions of science, but completely obliterates skepticism. Is it how bumblebees can fly even though they're so fat? <laughs> yeah, right. I saw yeah. that on a Facebook repost once. <laughs> so well, what do you guys think? I don't know if you if you read the article in my post about it, but what do you guys think they are? Four pillars of Chopra's mysticism. Love. So the, two of them are basically quantum <laughs> mechanics, you know? Yeah, that's a good Quantum and mechanics. Yeah. So something that scientists came up with yeah, exactly. and studying is right. Right. something right. that disproves science. No, it's wherever things That's get right. fuzzy, wherever we don't have a clear answer for something like, you know, it's right. Something we haven't figured out what, yet. Yeah, exactly. He's looking at the, at the edges of our scientific advance and then saying the gaps. Yeah. The, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a mysticism of the gaps argument. So, you know, basically he said, uh, uh, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is oh. what he means. God. You know, it's like beyond the limits of science, and here there be dragons, and uh, <laughs> and just sort of quantum weirdness. And then the third one is the origin of space and time. You know, we can't explain where space and time came from. Therefore, 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 science is 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 limited. It's broken. That's and, that actually it really drives home how far scientific progress has come. Because, yeah. you know, <laughs> if that's where opponents of science have to go, like, right. well, you don't know where everything came from. Like, that's pretty hardcore. We're doing a pretty good job figuring things out if that's, like, the big yeah. question that's left. Yeah. It, reminds me, of then it reminds me of evolution. It yeah. used to be you know, lightning and, and sickness. It's like, well, yeah, we're past that. We know how that works. You can't tell me why those crops failed. It must have been witches. <laughs> oh, well, you can't tell me what came before the Big Bang. It must have been witches. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. It's just an extrapolation of that exact same process. Uh, and then the fourth one is consciousness. Whoa. Oh, God, what do you know about that, Steve? Oh, yeah. So yeah. this is like right. Duality. Yeah. It's a whole, dualism. it's a whole dualism thing. Uh, so the notion that Oh, we have no idea where consciousness comes from. So this is what he writes. The whole issue of consciousness long ignored because of science's aversion to subjectivity, straw man, has become a major concern principally for two reasons. The assumption that the brain is the producer of the mind has never been proved. Therefore, it presents the possibility of being wrong. Second, if consciousness, if consciousness is more like a field effect than a unique human trait, the universe itself could be conscious. Or at least possess the qualities of proto-consciousness, just as DNA possesses the possibility of Homo sapiens, even at the stage when life forms were only single-celled organisms. And wow. if my grandma had wheels, she'd be a wagon. Deepak should not be able to use the term, the phrase "could be" anymore, because he obviously <laughs> does not know what it means. So yeah, so the first thing he says is that we haven't proved that the brain causes consciousness. That's just wrong. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> as proven a scientific theory as. 
anything else, you know, as evolution, as plate tectonics, as gravity, whatever. Pretty much every prediction that flows from the hypothesis that the brain is the mind, that the mind is the functioning of the brain, is what we we observe. Now, of course, Chopra, like other consciousness pseudoscientists, will say, yeah, but what about ESP? You know, well, yeah, come back to me when ESP is actually demonstrated with some actual science. And then, the, then he goes on to say, now what if, what, what if, if it's a field effect? So in other words, he's saying, if, if I'm right, then, then I could be right. If we take as a premise that my whole <laughs> mysticism is true, then my mysticism could be true. That's essentially like what a, he says. I can't argue with that. Like a, Hig, a Higgs field? Is that what he's kind of? It's just, it's just, it's just a way of saying in sciencey terms, the universal consciousness, which yeah. is the, the, which is his brand of mysticism. He, he could have said anything. What if rainbows are conscious? I, I get this a lot uh, in, in astronomy as well. When people say, I saw a UFO in this picture and, you know, you, I can measure how big it is. And if it's, if it's even a hundred miles away, it must be a mile across. And it's like, or it's a foot away and it's a dust moat, right? So as soon as you say, if it's only, or if only, or just even if when you're making stuff yeah. up, you know, if consciousness is a rainbow, if consciousness is a box of kittens, it would be adorable, but it would be no less accurate than saying if, if consciousness is a field. That doesn't even make sense. Jay, this is his religion, to answer your question. This is his creationism. That, that's why he cares. He's also making millions of dollars off of it, but still, this is his yeah, religion. Well, that's, yeah. You know, and I, right. I want to note that people talk about, you know, what science can't explain. And I think, well, you know, science doesn't claim to explain everything. Science is based on evidence. It's based on, on observations. And at, at some level, uh, sure, of course there are things science can't explain, but it's not like that's a failing of science. To say we can't explain something just means we may not know why, but we know how. You know, we, we kind of understand the Heisenberg uncertainty principle at this point, at least to the ability that our entire, you know, nation's economy depends on it in computers and communication and all of that. So we know how it works quite well, thank you. As to why the universe behaves this way, the answer is we don't know that. It it could behave a different way. If you had a different set of parameters in the early universe, things could be different now. Uh, But that doesn't mean we need to turn to nonsense and rhetoric that is completely unsubstantive. I mean, he just, it's word salad. He picks words out of the air and applies his own definitions to them and then goes, wow, this is deep. And it's like, it's not really deep. It's actually meaningless. It's kind of the opposite exactly. of deep. Do you guys ever question whether or not he really is just making it up and likes the sound of his voice? You know, it really does seem to be so similar to that. You just don't know. I think he believes yeah, it. Yeah, I, mean, I think he's absolutely convinced himself that what he's saying is absolutely, is 100% yeah, he's correct. He's in so deep to have to backpedal at this point, uh, even in the face of evidence, nah, it's just not going to happen. A lot of people who start off not believing it, say a con man, for example, over time, sometimes they can convince themselves that what they're saying is true. I'm not saying that's what Chopra is doing. I'm not saying that's what anybody's doing. I'm just saying that that has happened. So it, it, at some level, it's, it's almost a difference that makes no difference is no difference. Uh, yeah. whether, whether he believes it or not isn't really clear. The fact is, yeah, he's wrong. I agree. And he's been doing this a long time. I, I just searched my own blog. I've been, I've been debunking his baloney since 2009 at least, uh, where he's been attacking skeptics for no reason. Uh, I mean, he, he, you're right, Steve. I mean, if you read what Chopra says, uh, it's always a straw man argument against skeptics. 
Always. He, yeah, he doesn't really understand how science or skepticism works. Exactly. Let me give you a few more examples of how absolutely clueless he is. He says that negativity, meaning referring to skeptics, has never accomplished anything. Ah, that's a God, fundamental that's misunderstanding. That's what about. Exactly. <laughs> one, of, one of my commenters Do- says... Dr. Chopra. That's like saying to a sculptor, well, chipping away stone doesn't accomplish anything. You're <laughs> taking stuff away. That's a great metaphor. Yeah, yeah, it is. So negative. So science yeah, is off is about separating out the bullshit. That's about proving stuff wrong. You know, that is... Uh, yeah, so yeah, it completely misses that. And then here's his... Here's a quickie summary for him of, of militant skeptics. He says, militant skeptics who are wedded to an outmoded belief that the five senses are basically reliable, that only physical things are real, and that pure objectivity is possible, with the corollary that subjectivity will always be the enemy of real science. Wow. He packed in the straw men so tight there. Yeah. I don't think any of that is correct. <laughs> No, none of it is true. And then, you know, you could, you could just peruse any of our blogs, you know, Phil or, or Rebecca or me or listen to the show. And how many times do we talk about the fact that our senses are not reliable? Yeah. That, you know, reality is constructed. Our perceptions of reality are constructed. That, and you know, the, 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 that physical things are real. That's a meaningless statement. There's no way to interpret that, 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 that's not nonsensical. Right. What so? Well, clearly, energy is real, and energy is not physical in the way that matter is real. So that's kind of silly. And if he's talking about everything in the universe, then he's then he essentially is saying that real things are real. Nothing unreal. We, yes, yes, Deepak. We believe that only real things are real. You yeah. got us. Look at look at dark that's energy. Right. Three fourths three fourths of the entire universe yeah. is something that that's. I'm sure. I don't think it's physical. It's some sort of I, weird energy. But I mean, I have. Oh my god. <laughs> I thought that's where he was going to go with the fourth pillar. I didn't even think of the consciousness. I thought yeah. he might bring up dark energy. At this some is point. a guy that has talked to some of the brightest minds that we know. He's debated them. He has, you know, in my, from my perspective, been shown to be so ignorant. And he sits there, you know, unwavering as if nothing, none of the criticism or facts or, or logic that touch him matter in any way and he just keeps going and going and nothing stops this guy. Yeah, he doesn't care. He's not engaging. He's not engaging with anyone, you know, of uh, any weight, right? I mean, he's, he's did completely untouched by the backlash against his nonsensical posts, articles, you know, skeptics, cr- multiple skeptics correcting his t- complete mischaracterization of what skepticism is. He's not engaging. He's intellectually bankrupt. He's intellectually dishonest, in my opinion. He, he's not trying to really understand what's going on. He makes the, these empty gestures of being engaged, like, you know, uh, seeming to engage with people like Leonard Blond now. And it, for me, it makes me really frustrated when I see um, people like Milan now and other respected scientists giving him time and giving him some amount of respectability that he just does not deserve. Credibility. At all. Yeah. You know? That's a really good point. Like, I can understand actually. wanting to reach out to his audience, but, I mean, Deepak himself has just gone, gone, gone. That's a that's a great point, Rebecca. And it's it's funny that that you would say that because I was dealing with this today. There are times when it's worth it to engage somebody who disagrees with you, even if what they're disagreeing with is on the fundamentals of the argument itself. Like, for example, you know, evidence-based reasoning. Uh, on the other hand, it's quite clear that Chopra is uh, intractable. He's never going to change his mind. I would never bother 
dealing with him directly, debating him or going on a TV show with him or something like that, because it's worthless, at least to change his mind, uh, unless it were a completely neutral medium. Uh, and I, I, was de- I happened to be dealing with this today because I got sucked into a dumb argument with somebody about climate change. And, you know, it's like, if, if, you, were, if you were being intellectually honest, intellectually fair, and were willing to look at the evidence... Uh, that's one thing, but if you're just screaming conspiracy or whatever, or something like that, it's it's clear it's not worth my time at all to jump in. And so yeah. I agree with you. Uh, it's it. I find it disappointing when people do this as well. Clearly, Chopra's not going to change his mind. Uh, I don't think it's going to have any sort of real effect on his audience. And it's probably better to try to uh, create an atmosphere of more skeptical, evidence-based people so that eventually people like Chopra don't have an audience anymore. All right, well, what, one more quick news item. We do want to mention the fact that uh, recently, as we're recording this, uh, a massive typhoon hit the Philippines. Typhoon Haiyan, is that how you pronounce it? Haiyan? Uh, has killed thousands of people. I don't think they're anywhere near an accurate estimate at this, at the, again, at the time we're recording, uh, but it's at least in the thousands of people and millions homeless. The, the islands are devastated. If you look at pictures, it's just rubble, you know, from horizon to horizon with uh, bodies, you know, mixed in there. And uh, people are not getting food, not getting water. They don't have shelter. Uh, it's very hot and they're, you know, they're without access to, to uh, water. They're in the midst now of, a, of an epidemic of people getting dysentery from contaminated water. It's a really terrible scene there. Yeah. And, you know, I just, uh, just today, actually, I got an email from Red Tani, who's the founder and president of the Filipino Free Thinkers. And I want to mention that they're going to be doing a fundraising web show on uh, the weekend, November 30th to December 1st. And I don't have a URL or anything for you right now, but uh, they're just putting it together as I speak. So we'll, we'll update events.skeptic.org with info on how you can get involved in that if you want to donate and support them. Yeah, there's also another charity going on. Uh, the CFI hosts their Secular and Skeptical Charity, and they are now directing funds to uh, support the Philippines, the uh, the Typhoon Haiyan efforts. So we'll have the link under the show notes there if you want to donate through them. It's also known as Typhoon uh, Yolanda in yeah. the Philippines, for what oh, it's worth. Oh. That's what they're calling it? Yeah, I don't yeah. know why we don't yeah. just call why are it we Yolanda. Calling it I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand. It, it also, this has raised the uh, question yet again, is, is uh, to what extent, if any, is global warming to blame for the severity of this typhoon? And there is evidence, actually, not that there, we've made this mistake on the show before. It doesn't increase the number of such storms, hurricanes or typhoons, but it may increase their maximal intensity. The oceans are a little higher, a little bit warmer, and the and there is uh, recent evidence that um, the top wind speeds have been increasing of, of storms like this. That's right, and and I I, I want to jump in here because of course this is one of one of the things I, I I write about sometimes. When I wrote about high end the first time, I said, look, you know, it, it's very tempting to jump in and say global warming made this such a super typhoon, such a huge cyclone, and it is as far as we know the most intense uh, cyclone that's ever hit land in, in recorded history. Uh, there have been some other ones that have been very strong and very close, but nothing like this. Uh, the question is, did global warming do this? And uh, you, have to, you have to be careful because it's, it's really impossible to say 
that any one event is due to global warming, period. Uh, it's more like global warming is an environment in which uh, certain you know, potentials can be fostered. And as you mentioned, Steve, for example, uh, there was a paper that came out a few years ago that showed that for the most intense cyclones, the ones with the strongest winds, the winds have the top speeds of the winds have been increasing over time. That the top speeds of these winds have increased and increased substantially, measurably. Uh, it, it's not that um, there have been more storms, and it's not that every storm has gotten stronger. It's just that for the most powerful winds, the winds have increased, and this is uh, all things being equal. That's probably due to warmer water. And the warmer water is coming from probably global warming. You can't just say Haiyan was big because of global warming, but it's that environment that it's in. So you have to be careful about that. But as you mentioned, hurricanes do a lot of damage through the storm surge. And storm surge is basically uh, a wave of water in the eye that comes sweeping ashore. And that's very sensitive to sea levels. And the Philippines has had a lot of sea level rise over the past few decades. And that is from global warming because as you warm the water up, it expands. So sea levels are rising not necessarily just because the poles are melting, but also because warm water just is a little bit more voluminous than cold water. Uh, So that damage can be uh, attributed at least to global warming. So you, you just have to be careful how you phrase it. Uh, it's an environment in which all of these things sit. It's the way you look at stuff. Um, but uh, trying to attribute you know, effect A to cause B can be a little difficult. All right. Well, Phil, I understand you have to leave us. Yeah, I'm afraid no. so. Not one Real of these four-hour marathon interviews this time. Yeah, it was, it was always great to have you on the show. It's always great to be here. It really is. And Thank I'm not just Phil. saying that because I like you guys. We miss you when you're not here. Aww. Oh. Is there some place that, that people can see you? Any live adventure doing coming up? Not in time for this broadcast, but it's easy enough to find me online, of course, the Bad Astronomy blog at slate.com. And um, you can go to sciencegetaways.com where my wife and I do science vacations. And I will plug my nerd insult book with Zach Weiner from Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal and Jess Fink, who illustrated it. We just put that up on Amazon and Smashwords, so it's much easier to get at now. And the holidays cool. are coming. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> All right, Phil, take care. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Phil. See you, buddy. Later, care, brother. BA. Well, guys, we have just one ad this week, and it's for Hulu+. Plus. Oh, man, I'm such a big fan of Hulu+. Plus. Did you know there are so many good TV shows like SNL, Jimmy Kimmel Live, Shark Tank, Scandal, and Sergeant Frog, the Japanese animation about a frog that's an alien that comes to Earth to take it over, but is waylaid by his love of karaoke. My daughters and I have been burning our way through Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They're loving it. Oh, really? Yeah. And Doctor Who, 50th anniversary, get caught up on Doctor Who. You know, Hello. do it. All the episodes are available mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Hulu+. Plus. You need to also check out the exclusive content, including Hulu originals like The Wrong Mans and Behind the Mask. Hulu's new docuseries that takes you inside the world of sports mascots. Finally. And you can get (laughs) access to a collection of ad-free movies and kids' content, 
for only $7.99 a month, but you can check it out free for two weeks by going to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. Hey, guys, any of you that have tried Hulu, you should go out and try Hulu Plus because you get so much more with it. With Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere. Hulu Plus lets you watch thousands of hit TV shows and movies in, the, in your living room or on the go with your smartphone or tablet, which is awesome. Yeah, so go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU or click the link on our website. All right, Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? It is, and what we're going to do is play for you the new Who's That Noisy this week, and next week we're going to have two reveals, which means for those listening to last week's Noisy, we're extending the time in which you can go ahead and submit your answer. So uh, here we go, this week's brand new Who's That Noisy. Enjoy. the new Mountain Goats album. So go ahead and submit your answer via email WTN at theskepticsguide.org or feel free to leave it. Leave your answer as a post on our forums, sguforums.com. Next week we will have a double reveal. Good luck, everyone. Alrighty. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. Alright, our first email this week is a name that logical fallacy. You guys ready for this? This comes yes. from Albany, New York. And the uh, the writer writes, I can't seem to categorize what fallacy this might be. Let's say Jay tells Bob that Steve is going to lie to him tonight. Then Steve tells Bob something which is true, but Bob says, Aha, I know not to believe you because Jay already told me you were going to lie. For me, this came in the form of childhood indoctrination and being told that my religious views were the truth and that people who believe other things had been deceived, therefore I knew not to believe them. It wasn't until my 20s that I began to realize I actually had no idea which side of the fence I was on. I had been trusting my peers, so I might say it was something like an appeal to authority, but I feel like it has more to do with thinking that you have advanced knowledge of an oncoming lie and that causing you to disregard the contradictory information without pause. I think that there are many variations of this from conspiracy theories to the tactics of con artists. I just don't know how to classify it. That's called Routine 19. Routine 19. That's right. Any other names you might want to attach to it? What? <laughs> well, it's, 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 <laughs> I don't know that reference either. Yo, I don't. What's Routine 19? That, that, that's what my dad used to say when someone was giving him the old runaround, you know, like the old. The old Hucklebuck. Okay. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that oh the I old know. Hucklebuck. Why didn't you say so? <laughs> <laughs> that's what that is. So, yeah, to our email, that is called the old Hucklebuck. I love it. I love it. All right. All right. So my my first thought was poisoning the well, right? Yeah, I was thinking poisoning the well or ad hominem. Which is similar. Which is similar. Attacking the source. What about a false premise? Well, sure. Uh, Yes, it is a false premise in that. But the, the the premise, though, is that the other person is a liar or is part of the conspiracy or is the mouthpiece of Satan or, you know, take your pick depending on your belief system. It's essentially a mechanism in order to lock somebody into a closed belief system by telling them that anyone who disagrees with the belief system is part of the conspiracy or is from Satan untrustworthy or lacks faith or whatever, you know, or they're liars is the simplest thing to say about it. 
So, yeah, I do think the sort of the ad hominem poisoning the well sort of axis ca- captures that because you're, you're just doing it in advance, you know, um, in order to undercut the credibility of the other person so that they won't be listened to. But it is a very common tactic of creating the closed belief system that, you know, is not uncommon to many religions, many conspiracy theories, many cults, etc. All right, one more. So this, I'm not going to read a specific email, but there were a few people who, uh, would, so actually two weeks ago, we talked about the, the fact that, um, in our interview with Chris Mooney and Indre, that uh, all animals get cancer, that this notion that animals don't get cancer is, is silly, that it's not due to industrial poisoning, it's just life, you know, things get cancer. Several people commented on the forums or on email, hey, what about naked mole rats? Yeah. I heard that naked mole rats never get cancer. So, sounds interesting. I did a deep dive on this question, and what do you think I found? That if they wear clothes, they don't get cancer. Un- undetermined. I guess if they do. They die before they get cancer. <laughs> what I found, doing as deep a dive as I could in the literature, is that the naked mole rat and the blind mole rat do not get cancer. Wow. For as long as... Any of them have been observed in a you know, laboratory setting. There's, there hasn't been a single incidence, even with thousands of animals being observed for years, of any of them getting cancer. To the point that... Are we uh, giving them like lots of Diet Coke? Because yeah. I've heard... So that's a really good question, actually. So what if you try to give them cancer, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this this there's an entire research program trying to figure out why why these mole rats, you know, the you know naked mole rats and blind mole rats, why they don't get cancer. Uh, they are considered highly cancer resistant. You know, you don't want to say immune because your observations are always finite. Just there are no known documented cases. So I uh, found a couple of interesting things. One study looking at the looking at the blind mole rat found that they. They're fibroblasts. So fibroblasts are like basic cells of your connective tissue. You know, it's like when you cut yourself and then a scar forms to heal the cut, that's fibroblasts moving into the wound and you know propagating and, and forming the scar tissue. That the that the uh, fibroblasts of the blind mole rat, they actually surround cancer cells and inhibit their growth and spread. Hmm. That that the fibroblasts are much less tolerant of crowding than, say, the fibroblasts of mice. Now, mice get tumors easily. Most mice will die of tumors. I didn't know that. They're really prone to getting tumors. Um, and mice live to be, you know, several years. Mole rats live to be... Ten. Thirty-four years. Whoa. What? Ah. Yeah. Wow. And That's I think it's, amazing. Yeah, for naked mole rats, it's like 30, 30 something, 35 years or so. And for blind mole rats, it's like 20 something years. So they live Whoa. much longer. I'm getting a mole rat. And even though they live much longer, so they don't die before they get tumors. They, they live a really long time because they don't get tumors, partly. So one of the answers is their fibroblasts seem to actually inhibit the growth of tumors. Another study found that they their genetics are different that uh, whereas like in the mouse a single mutation of a specific gene will cause a tumor in the mole rat the same mutation in that gene will not because of other um, genetic variants that they have so in essence you would need to get several mutations at the same time in order for a tumor to occur 
So, so their genetics conspire to make it less likely. You know, no single mutation will do it. You need a host of, of mutations. And then the third answer that I found, this is now a study in the, in the, uh, naked mole rat, was that their fibroblasts, maybe this may explain why, how, one way in which the fibroblasts suppress tumors, they produce a lot of hyaluronic acid, which is normal. It's something that fibroblasts produce in mammals, that this may be what is suppressing the spread and the growth of uh, tumor cells. Now, can I buy that online from a Chinese pharmacy? Uh, it's something that, you, that your own cells have to make. You know, just eating it, it's not going to help you. I'm not asking whether it'll help me. Yeah. I'm asking whether or not I can buy it yet uh, and whether or not Dr. Oz is promoting it. I see. Because you want to resell it with claims that it will yes. cure your cancer. <laughs> Now, of course, every article, every, every popular article, not the, not the scientific articles about to say, this may help us, you know, cure cancer in the future. I know, sure, you know, discovering how the mole rats prevent themselves from getting cancer is, may lead to something which may lead to something which can be, uh, you know, help us treat cancer. But, you know, it's that they evolved this way. So like with the hyaluronic acid, for example, that, that also is what gives them their kind of funky skin. You know, the, the, it not only is it naked, but it's wrinkly and ugly. So that may be the trade-off. <laughs> you know, you may need to have ugly skin in order let's, to let's uh, hold the value judgments, all right? In order to have whatever, yeah, you know, by human subjective standards, in order to be, you know, have that kind of resistance. That's going to be this. the new sexy. Are you kidding? Sure. <laughs> living with living cancer-free but super wrinkly. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna start selling mole rat juice. Naked mole, mole rat, rat juice. juice. That look, you're just gonna hey. blend them up. <laughs> oh, it won't God. be real naked mole rat juice. I'm just going to call it that. Oh. <laughs> so I was really surprised. I'm like, I set out to, to say, oh, this is BS. I'm sure I'm going to, it's sure it's exaggerated. I'm going to find some report somewhere of a mole rat with cancer. I couldn't find it. Every reference I found said, nope, there's no cases known. And it, and there's actually multiple lines of research showing that there's, they have the pretty, they have evolved pretty effective anti-cancer strategies. These buggers uh, live to 34, Steve. So that means they, May not have the, many natural enemies either. I mean, how yeah, can yeah. Well, they're underground, right? you know. Well, they're underground, but they're the naked mole rat is what's also one of the few mammals that they, they basically have a, a female queen, and then there's a bunch of males that live in service to the lone female queen of the colony. I want to be a mole rat. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what I've decided. Right? <laughs> I'm shocked. What what animal would you be if you could be any animal? Mole rat. Naked. <laughs> a naked mole rat. Yeah, naked. Naked, naked as a jaybird. And guess what? Their closest living relative is the jaybird. <laughs> An animal we talked about recently. Oh, the, 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 the whistle pig. The, the whistle porcupine. Pig. Oh, damn. No, the quill pig. The porcupine is also known as a quill pig. Did you know that? Not a whistle pig. <laughs> no. That's what porcupine <laughs> awesome. means, quill pig. Every every animal uh, has a name that includes the name pig. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> we're long <laughs> pigs. Humans are bipedal pigs. No, we're but, long pigs. We are long pigs. Long pigs. But a, yeah. but a quill pig will get cancer, I guess. So Yes, but, but not so, a naked mole rat. So basically it's relative. So anyway, very interesting. <laughs> I was This is one that surprised me. Yeah. Wow. But very cool. Rebel scum, damn dirty ape, Cylon, Rose. What's warrior. he doing? What? 
hopefully. What's that guy doing? Uh, oh, he's reading off all the different levels of membership you can have with the Skeptic's Guide of the Universe. I thought that show was free. Well, no, the show's free, but you can subscribe. Subscribe? Why would I do that? Jeez, I don't know. It supports the SGU that you've been listening to for all these years. It helps their other skeptical outreach projects. Projects like what? Well, like Bob trying to build a nanobot-based time machine. Oh. Kidding. But there's tons of things the gang is always working on, and your bucks can help make the world a more critically thinking place. Oh, really? Sure. And look, premium members get access to premium content and ad-free versions of the podcast and discounts for Nexus and an email newsletter and... Kardashian. Jeez. Corinthian. Seems to be an awful lot of levels of support. Yeah. How many of those are real? I don't know, like the first 11 or so. The rest are just with a bit. Yeah. Very funny. Yeah. So look, you can start supporting for as little as four bucks a month. That's like one overpriced designer coffee. Subscribe and you can help the SGU be as SGUE as possible. SGUE? I don't know, whatever. Man. Funny accent guy, wrap it up. Support the Skeptics Rubik's Guide Cube. to the Universe. Go Atari to the skepticsguide.org and click on the Bionic membership UV page, okay? Sounds okay. Wristwatch, okay. wrist rocket, Davy Crockett, transporter pad, beryllium sphere, Aunt May's prescription. It's time for science or. Fiction. It's time to play science or fiction. It's a little retro there, Evan. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I don't know. I think I, you know, got too close to a wormhole or something. I don't know. Science. <laughs> a game we play every week in which Steve usually gives us the rogues a bunch of questions. Several of which are science, but one is fictitious, one is a fake, and it is up to us, the rogues, to figure out which item is the fake. However, this week, Steve is going to be playing, and I will be hosting the game. So I wish you all the best of luck. Thanks, Evan. Thank here you. we go. Thank you. There is not a theme this week, Yay. Okay. but all three items do have something in common. I did that for that's Rebecca's a, that, sake. By definition, <laughs> that's, that is that's a theme. theme. Exactly. <laughs> I was just trying to soften the blow for Rebecca because she's not all that into themes, right? Don't complain. At least there is a theme. Three options. There is a theme. <laughs> this week's theme is bacteria. Evan. Bacteria. Uh-huh. Ooh. Who here likes bacteria? Come on. Come on. Put your hands me, together me, for me, bacteria. Me. Let's go. Item number one. A new study suggests that a bacteria found in a turnip might prevent the flu. And human clinical trials are happening right now. Item number two. Scientists have reportedly succeeded in killing a bacteria using a protein taken from a virus. Item number three. Researchers have shown that bacteria released from the scent glands of a hyena leaves detailed information about the hyena, information equivalent to what you would read on a person's Facebook profile. Rebecca is going to go first today. Rebecca. All right. I have not heard of any of these, so good job, Evan. Thank you. These are all a complete mystery to me. Excellent. Because of that, I want to play the, the psychological game here. A bacteria found in turnip might prevent the flu. That's weird. That's a weird thing <laughs> that I've never heard. <laughs> Could it be true? Yes, I, I, I suppose. Yeah. Killing a bacteria using a protein taken from a virus 
also seems uh, plausible because I've heard of researchers looking into the use of viruses as ways to combat diseases and things. So yeah, why not? Why couldn't a virus kill a bacteria or a protein from a virus kill a bacteria? The scent glands of a hyena leaving detailed information like what you would find on a Facebook profile. So this is where I realized that I was going to be playing the psychological game because that is tailor made from a press release sent from a university, I'm sure, to a newspaper outlet and printed as is. Like that sounds exactly like something that exists. Like let's tie the, let's use the idea of Facebook. Kids love Facebook. Let's use that as a way to get people to pay attention to this weird thing about hyenas sniffing each other. So, so that one I think is definitely true. And so if I'm playing that game, the turnip thing is so bizarre that that seems like maybe that that one's true as well. The only one that's kind of bland and seems like it's trying to quietly pass under the radar is this thing about using uh, protein from a virus to kill a bacteria. There's no turnips involved. There's no social networks involved. <laughs> it's a very quiet, unassuming item. <laughs> and for that reason, I believe that it is the fiction. Okay. Jay. Rebecca made a lot of sense. Really? But uh, I will... I will I will take these uh, one by one, okay? The one about the study that suggests that bacteria in a turnip could prevent the flu. Wow, that's you know that's a big claim. That's a very big claim. Uh, and you know, like Rebecca said, you know, bacteria doing something to a virus is definitely a novelty idea, but I don't think that it's impossible. But I just think if that hit the news, I think that in the time while I was sitting here, I, it would have come up on my computer screen. Uh, not that I'm looking at the news right now. I'm just saying. Um, okay, next one about the um, killing bacteria using a protein taken from a virus, which is, isn't that the exact opposite of the first one? You could look at it that way, I suppose. Yeah, this one is um, under underwhelming in its lack of information. Sure, okay, there, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's not impossible, but, you know, there's nothing really here to sink my teeth into. Just this is what's going on. So that one I have to, I have to put in limbo real quick. And then the last one is the bacteria that released from the scent glands and all that. I think that one is definitely science. Um, I know that there's a novelty thing there about the Facebook profile, but I always kind of thought that when a dog was like smelling the pee spot of another dog, that's kind of like them reading the newspaper. Remember that, Bob? Yep. We used to say that Bocce was out reading the newspaper when he was like rolling around smelling all the pee spots everywhere. So, okay, being that that one is science in my mind, then it's between one and two, and I think that two is phenomenally underwhelming, so I'm going to say that one's the fake. That's the one about the bacteria killing the virus. Okay, thank you, Jay. Bob. Well, yeah, the, the turnip one does seem bizarre. And why, you know, why would a bacteria that's in a turnip happen to help against the help prevent the flu that one doesn't seem right to me um and the third one as well the, the, yeah the whole facebook thing uh it just seems too too manufactured for appeal um so i agree with rebecca on that one um and the thing is though two might make the most sense to me and because i know that viruses combat bacteria routinely i mean that's just one of the things that they do i'm pretty sure so the fact 
that uh, they did this is not, it's not too surprising to me. But I do also agree how number two is, seems anomalous compared to the other two. But screw it. I'm going to just go with my gut and not use psychology, but just use my what I know of some science that uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the turnip one. Say that's fiction. Okay, Bob. Thank you. And last, certainly not least, Stephen Novella. Yeah, I had you know actually had the exact same reaction that Rebecca did to these items. The third one does read like uh, that a silly kind of press release. Evan, if you faked that, good for you because you got us all. Because I'm going to say that that one is science. <laughs> so for me, it was between one and two. You know, bacteria killing a virus or virus killing a bacteria. Both are are completely plausible. Yeah, bacteria to prevent the flu. It's a probiotic. Yeah, human trials are ongoing. The number of things that suggest that there may be an effect is is so massive that uh, it's hard to say that that one's implausible. And and again, the way that that one's worded, new study suggests, you know, that's that that's that seems like the kind of thing that would be reported. You know, killing a bacteria what in a petri dish? You can kill a bacteria with all all sorts of ways. You know, using a, a protein that they got from a virus. That's yeah, that's very very mundane so the biggest thing going against that is that it's not re- it's not reported in a way that sounds like it's a science news item it could be, it absolutely could be but it just I, I do have to just go with the wording there to to say that that one protein from a virus killing the bacteria i'll, I'll agree that that one is the fiction okay so therefore we're going to take these in reverse order because none of you think that the fiction is the one that reads researchers have shown that bacteria released from the scent glands of a hyena leaves detailed information about the hyena information equivalent to what you would read on a person's facebook profile you all think this is science and this one is science yes bacteria powering the social lives of hyenas Bacteria residing in the scent glands. Like. Of, <laughs> bacteria residing in the scent glands of spotted and striped hyenas appear to play a crucial role in producing the smelly chemicals the animal uses to communicate, according to the new study. So what they do is it comes, so it gets secreted as part of their, you know, through their scent glands. So the scent comes out, and also comes out is this. Paste is how they describe it. Disgusting. Ew. This oh. this paste as it as these hyenas brush up along, you know, pieces of wood or grass or the ground or wherever it is they are, have of course the bacteria clings to the paste, and therefore it leaves it behind. And yes, there is a lot of information in that bacteria. Some of the key chemical components mammals use to communicate uh, are their sex, their age, their reproductive status, and other key traits. Um, all part of the fermentation products of symbiotic bacteria, which is living in their scent glands. It uh, identifies different social groups and individuals within a species. And it boils down to the differences in the the odor-producing bacterial communities. Cool. A smell of their own, as they say. So good job sniffing that one out, guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right, let's, let's move on to number two. Scientists have reportedly succeeded in killing a bacteria using a protein taken from a virus. Everyone thinks this is the fiction, except Bob. Bob went with the turn of one. And this one is the fiction. Crap. Ah. It is. Ah. Sorry, Bob. GWR, Bob. GWR. So this news came out uh, just hours ago, in fact. And only one place, as far as at least a few hours ago, had picked up on this. 
um, from Haaretz in Israel, because the researchers are from Israel. Um, so by the time you read about this, there may be other places reporting on it, and there might be actually some new news to report. But for now, this is the only report. So a group of Israeli researchers have succeeded in isolating a protein that kills bacteria. They did not kill the bacteria, but they did isolate the protein that kills the bacteria. So it's E. coli is what they were able to uh, kill. And uh, it's a phage. It's a bacteriophage, and which is yeah. a virus, right? I love and, them. Yeah, very cool stuff. They are so cool looking. There are more of them than any other organism on the planet. Yes, that's that right. amazing? Yeah. And they have a life cycle to them called the lytic cycle. So they infect a bacterial host. They hijack the host's cellular machinery to produce many copies of themselves. And then they go from there to find new hosts. So what this one does, though, is that they've isolated the protein that stops the um, chromosomes from uh, dividing in the cells so that the cell gets bigger and bigger but there's no splitting of the of the of the chromosome with that so effectively what they're saying is that if this holds true you could actually get these bacteria to burst or kind of destroy themselves in the process at least that's what they're going to go for when they try to make drugs uh using these kinds of techniques and perhaps it will complement if not someday hopefully replace uh anti uh antibacterials yeah, I'm not, yeah. It's, Which is, you know, they, yes, they I know. That's, it's, I doubt it's going to replace antibiotics. The The problem is that it probably doesn't kill them fast enough in order to overcome the infection. Right. And we so, don't, and, but we'll and, see. I mean, this is not going to be – it's not clear whether or not this will pan out as actually clinically useful. But not, it might. Not clear, right? And right, you're right, Steve. That's that's far that's far away. Many, 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 many steps. A lot of research still to do on that. And they don't know that the bacteria doesn't have some sort of mechanism to to actually prevent uh, that that from happening. But uh, but at least the researchers were able to isolate the protein, and that was what made the news. They didn't kill the bacteria, but they isolated the protein that works against the bacteria. So. Good job figuring that one out, guys, which means the last one, a new study suggests that the bacteria found in a turnip might prevent flu and human clinical trials are happening right now is science. And we have to go to Japan for this one. Japanese pickled turnips are what they are. And uh, they apparently have protective effects in preventing people from catching the flu. And yes, the human trials have been uh, have begun on this. Uh, let's see. Specifically, researchers said a new study was underway in which they are giving people a probiotic drink. Very good, Steve. Containing the same KB290 strain of the bacterium found in the pickled turnip. I'll believe it when I see it. Yep. So Show they, me the clinical trials. Well, they did it in the mice studies, and they said it was strong enough to prevent infection of the H1N1 flu strain. So, you know. As usual, you start with the mice and you uh, you go from there. But certainly sure. not the na- the naked mat, uh, rat mole. Uh, they had problems uh, rat. when they tried yeah. naked mole rat, whatever. Uh, <laughs> They're bitter enemies of the rat moles, so please. Yeah. Get <laughs> opposite, direct, direct opposite. So good job, Rebecca, Jay, and Steve. Bob, thank you. I, thank you, thank you. I, Bob, I appreciate your bravery. So uh, brownie points nah. for that one. Thanks yeah. for covering everyone. You did a good job. Thank you very much. Yeah, well done. Thanks, Ep. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I have a quote sent in by a listener named John Setterfield. And John sent me a quote from an author named Michael E. Mann. Anybody ever hear of Michael E. Mann? He was on our show. We interviewed him not long ago. Not too long ago. 
Michael Mann. Mann. <laughs> the hockey stick. That way. The hockey stick. Exactly. I got a fantastic quote from Michael. Ready? Although scientific revolutions in how we see the world do occur, the bulk of our scientific understanding comes from the cumulative impact of numerous incremental studies that together paint an increasingly coherent picture of how nature works. And I thought that was well-suited uh, for some of the topics that we discussed today. Sure. Quote by Michael Eman. After we recorded this episode, uh, we learned of the death of Sylvia Brown who died at age 77 on Wednesday, November 20th. So we will have a more complete discussion of this on next week's show. All right, guys. Thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And don't forget that this episode was brought to you by Hulu Plus. To sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite shows right now, and for an extended free trial, go to HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU, or just go to our homepage and there will be a link right there for you. 